So I was working at a treatment center for really severe substance use disorders, dual diagnosed type of clients, multiple overdoses. And, and then we just packed up the car and then I came on out to DC. Art Kleinschmidt was the White House deputy drug czar under Trump. How Art got to the White House is quite unconventional, just like everything else in the Trump administration. In recovering himself, he never expected his path to take him to DC. We talk about that and what he thinks the real solutions are to end the overdose crisis in our conversation for this episode of Grieving Out Loud. You have to do the demand side and the supply side. I was a licensed therapist and that's all I was really gonna do until I was picked to go into the federal government. Arch is joining me from Washington, D.C., where he served as deputy drug czar under the Trump administration. And that sounds like a very interesting job and an interesting time because Trump did declare the opioid crisis as a national public health emergency, which it is and continues to be. How did you happen to end up in that job, Art? Thank you for having me on your show. It's a great honor. I look at it as I got pretty lucky, I, something I never thought I would ever do. I have a long alcohol and drug use history myself. And then after I got sober, I ended up becoming a licensed clinician working at rehabs. And I was doing that for like 15 years. And then a friend of my wife's was appointed by Trump. And he became an assistant to the president. And then President Trump was making, this is very early on, was making, you know, addiction, big chunk of his platform that he was running on. And so I was coaching my friend up on a number of these addiction issues related to fentanyl and everything else. And then he wanted my resume and one thing led to another. I ended up in the administration. So I was working at a treatment center for really severe substance use disorders, dual diagnosed type of clients, multiple overdoses and that sort of a thing. And then we just packed up the uh, car and then I came on out to D.C. It's kind of funny because he wanted my resume, so I sent it, and I didn't think anything of it. And then I got an email from the White House, and I thought it was junk, and I was going to delete it. And then my wife said, no, 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 that's them. And so I called the number, and sure enough, I was calling <laughs> We're going to delete it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Oh, you know, and President Trump obviously was known for doing things in unconventional ways, whether you like it or not, you know, whatever your opinion may be. Well, Probably unconventional. I, I had nothing to compare it to. So I never would have sure. thought. None of my life was like I was working towards this end of being in the White House. I was one of these guys that had like real world experience. So I was kind of plucked from like flyover country. I, I was living in a cool area of the Rocky Mountains, but I never would have thought that I would end up working where I was working. I started at SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Health Service Administration. And then I got detailed to the Domestic Policy Council, which is the West Wing Policy Shop. And then from there, I got promoted to deputy director. So when you were a deputy director, what do you think were some of the best things that were done to try to make a dent in this horrible overdose epidemic? If you look at it, we had a 4% decrease in overdoses. And I think it was around the 2019 time area that we actually saw a dip in the overdoses. And then when COVID and everything, it's right. just skyrocketing ever since. But I would say one of the best things we did, if you really want to get that, we, we worked on both the demand and the supply side. Because when you look at drug addiction, you can't just deal with just the supply. You got to actually right. put the treatment apparatuses in place, doing the interventions, working with the people who are suffering with the disease. But at the same time, you do have to control the flow of drugs into the uh, community. So we, we, we took it as a double-pronged approach. In fact, well, the U.S. attorney in 2019 here in my local area 
said to me, he thought all of my advocacy and my speaking out about what happened to my daughter because I have a very public platform helped lower numbers here in 2019. Maybe it did. I don't know. But then well, they shot back up again. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But I mean, the COVID lockdowns is really sort of what actually yes, put this of course. here. And now yes. I, you know, I'm not, I'm just going to say, I mean, the border is wide open and fentanyl is just coming across. Yeah. The question about that though, okay. isn't a lot of the fentanyl coming in the mail and on planes and on ships? I, I could say all of the above, but most of it's coming in bulk that there are a lot of it. They're kind of muling across the border. How, how it works when you said the mail, okay, I would, when I was working in treatment, I worked with a lot of young people, a lot of severe substance use disorders. And I, I would have people on my caseload, a lot of them like your daughter's age, and someone could be pretty severe. And they were very savvy about getting drugs online on the dark web. They would be in my office and they would show me how they could download tour and do all these things. You know, if I got a caseload of, say, five to seven, it was getting to the point to where I would have at least two guys who main drug supplier was the internet, was the dark web. And then most of those guys who were getting the drugs off the dark web were then turning around and selling the products that they were getting. So what happened after that? I, I know the government stepped in and did a lot to shut down the dark web, but the problem actually sort of metastasized from there, almost from like a bigger profit motive. Instead of just shipping that through via the mail, a lot of what you're seeing is China, and everybody knows this now, but they're taking the precursors and putting them on like big ocean liners and they're going to the northern part of Mexico where it's almost like a total like narco state with the cartels up there. So they're mixing it in northern Mexico and then it's coming across the border. And it's also coming across the border in various ways too, right? It's not just on trucks? No, not just on trucks. Without the demand though, we wouldn't have this. I, I think of two things. Part of it seems like chemical warfare on Americans all of this fentanyl that's out there. And the other part is the demand for it. So I think it's very hard to solve this entire problem with law enforcement. How do you stop all this from happening? They go with a two-pronged sort of approach. You can't allow the supply just to keep coming into the country. You got to at least try to dovetail it or sort of uh, curtail it sort of the best you can. This you know, we did something similar with Qualus back when I was sort of using too. They became sort of epidemic early in the, in the 70s and early 80s. And I remember we did, were able to kind of stem that tide back then. I was using back then, so I, I know all about it. But we were able to sort of stem the tide back then where basically that drug's almost non-existent today. And the way that I always kind of look at it is when I have a client on my caseload, for whatever the reason is, but the American sort of culture is very consumerish. We're very much big sort of consumers of this ingredient. So if you're making, if you're a cartel, the marketplace that you really want is you want to get into America. But I, I agree with you. You have to treat, you have to do the demand side. I say in the supply side. I mean, I was a licensed therapist and I told all I was going to do until I was picked to go into the federal government. So. That just leads me into my question about you working as a licensed therapist, how you got to that point, because I, I think you started out as an accountant. Yeah, I was a CPA for a while, been sober as a CPA. When did your but, drug use start or your alcohol, alcohol and drugs? Well, well uh, when did it start? I probably drinking before, maybe back in the seventh and eighth grade. I was using for a long time and then, you know, I, Catholic schools and I ended up like failing eighth grade and they, I, I wasn't able to graduate. I don't know if I passed any classes. It made me go to summer school. And then I was able to get into, after summer school, get into ninth grade. Then I went to a pretty strict Catholic school. 
um, that's when I started smoking weed and I had a teacher that wouldn't let me into the classroom anymore. So I would, so I had like a couple off periods and then I'll be running around. I would leave campus and then run around New Orleans a little bit. I would steal candy and go sell it and then, you know, use the money to buy weed, stuff like that. Do you remember what it was or why you did it? Or was it just something that you did? You know, was there a reason? I, I think I was sort of rebellious in nature. At first, I liked it. It kind of gave me excitement. But then then it overtook me. Now I, I realize, you know, that I had shame and stuff like that. But I, I look at people and they all have different core issues. It is something inside of a person that maybe they're looking to be filled. Or um, did you find any common core themes in yourself? And then I know you went into recovery, went out of school, became a therapist. But in yourself and in your patients, are there principles or core things that they share that you all share? Yeah, yeah good question. Yes. I think sometimes like when you look at sort of the like, government, they put too much emphasis on drug of choice. And in reality, somebody who's used and used 10 different substances, what they're really relating to is their feelings, the emotionality of it. All. And it, you look at it sometimes, I think shame is one of the biggest ones. And shame isn't just low self-esteem. It's more of a belief that I'm sort of defective. There's something wrong with me. And if I could just anesthetize that feeling, then that could go away. But that overgeneralizes it because then you, you start getting into a lot of different stuff, like the trauma that happens uh, prior to addiction. And then you got the trauma that occurs because an addictive lifestyle actually comes with a lot of consequences right. with it. So they're incurring trauma along the way. So they would have like, say, a negative experience. Well, they'll use that to define themselves negatively. So a lot of people also sort of engage into a lot of like negative self-talk that actually makes it more apt for them to kind of want to use drugs and alcohol as well. A lot of it's kind of like a self-medicating type of a aspect of it. So like when they're in group, they're actually sharing on like a cathartic level more so than based on the drug of choice. The drug itself doesn't matter. It's the reason for using the drug. Yeah, a lot. A lot of times. You're treating the disease of addiction. You're treating the, the emotionality of it. We have a biopsychosocial type of element to the disease. Biological, psychological, and social. Yeah. I wondered also then what you have found to be the best treatment for substance use disorder. I know there are no two addictions are the same, right? So everyone's a little bit different. What may work for one person may not necessarily work for another. What worked for you? That's that's a great question. I I, it's, I I didn't get sober till I was 36. So I crashed out pretty hard there. They had the New Orleans pill mills and everything. I could kind of go into all that as well. But by the time I got 36, I had done probably all the drugs that there, at the time that they were around. And I, the only thing I didn't know was what maybe I could be capable of if I didn't sort of handicap myself with drugs and alcohol. So I, I did have a willingness to give it recovery a shot. It was actually hard for me. And I didn't think that I would actually stay sober. Uh, and I did some things that actually sort of helped me because I was pretty aimless in my early part of recovery. I would get fired from jobs. I got fired from, I don't know how many different jobs, just because I brought all my bad work habits with me. It just, I just wasn't getting high anymore. Even though you weren't using, you were still acting. As if. Right, right. I was like two years sort of wandering the wilderness. I was in one sober house, got booted out of there. Then I had to live in like a, a flea bag crack motel for about two weeks. For some reason, I, I stayed sober, even though it was wow. a pretty bad environment. Yeah, I'm, then, I'm shocked you would actually be able to resist. Right. And then I got myself, in, I was lucky enough to get myself into an Oxford house. I got sober up in St. Paul, Minnesota. 
where they have a strong recovery. They uh, do work very strong. If you're going to ask me, like the number one thing was with me, it was almost like having the other people sort of around. Connection, they always say, is the solution to addiction. It's a huge solution. I want to ask you next about prevention, because I was at a conference in D.C., and for the first time, I think ever, three former drug czars were on stage talking about all these prevention programs that they are supporting, most of them targeted to middle and high school age kids. One of the drug czars was talking about no use ever, you know, until age 21. And I just think with the fentanyl out there and with pills on Snapchat and what kids are exposed to now, it's such a frightening time. And so how do we prevent people from ever picking up that joint or trying that pill in the first place? That's kind of really sort of hard to do, but if you're going to do a prevention program, I know I don't mean to be vague, but you have to kind of touch on and at least address some of these core issues that are actually exist that make actually developing the addictive substance use disorder more likely. So if they're a, a child with certain traumas that are going on in the house, certain abuses, if you could work on in something, doing something like that to address those type of core issues would make it less attractive uh, to somebody to actually sort of pick up. When you look at the the disease of addiction, they have a genetic component to it that makes somebody very susceptible, and it has yes. an environmental component, right? Now, some people are brought up in a household or an environment where they actually have both a genetic and an environmental component to it. But, you know, th- those sorts of things, if you could kind of look at addressing some of the uh, core issues, you would have a better chance. Now, you could do the psychoeducation, but for somebody who has a leaning for that, you know, that may or may not be all that effective. And you're talking about the messaging that you did. I actually think that's effective. Bringing that to light, I think was very effective, regardless of what you think of President Trump. We actually broadcasted that, you know, kind of had the public actually seen addictive crisis, actually hearing about it. And I think that actually becomes more persuasive than you actually really know, because that actually kind of gets into somebody's psyche more than I think you realize it does. You've been talking about this for so many years and you, you experienced it you've helped people. Do you think the stigma surrounding addiction has lessened? I get the whole stigma angle, and I'm a strong believer in not stigmatizing somebody with disease or stigmatizing somebody, stigmatizing people with a mental illness. I do sometimes worry that as a society, I feel like we're actually destigmatizing what is a self-destructive behavior sometimes. And I think that message is getting a little confused. Right, because we don't want to promote dangerous and destructive behaviors in people, but we want to get people help. Do you think medically assisted treatment, I know we both know Dan Schneider from the pharmacist yeah, from your hometown of New Orleans, and he's really big on medically assisted treatment. Yeah. Do you think that that is the solution? It's a valuable tool. And I wrote a blog on it. I, when you look at medicine assisted treatment, I prefer to have certain structures around it. I, I'm not a big, big advocate of handing it out to somebody because I feel like you're actually just increasing their habit and you're not helping them. So if you use it correctly, I think it's an awesome tool to be used. And I know stories because I had many clients on my case over the history of abusing the mood altering components of Matt. Clients that abuse Suboxone. Yes. Yeah. Methadone as well. I've been an advocate for it. I just like it to be used with, with certain sort of constraints around it. How do you think we do that? How do you think we use it correctly? What needs to be done? 
Well, I would like it to at least, if you can, depending on which sort of format you are at, sort of like a methadone clinic does have structure around it. Now, if somebody doesn't want to go to the methadone clinic and they're going to a doctor, I would prefer you trying to find some kind of way to do a certain amount of, I don't want to say it just has to be strictly clinical, but I, I prefer some sort of structure around it. If you were appointed drug czar today, what would you do? differently than what's being done right now? How do we end this crisis? How do we stop so many young lives from being lost? The New York City Health Department put out a pamphlet, and it's all about how to use fentanyl sort of safely. You could have a buddy with you and you could do sort of small amounts. That's why I'm talking about the messaging and the destigmatizing, not destigmatizing. Fentanyl, the way it sort of works is the high doesn't last as long as the other effects of the drug. So when somebody, if they told to follow the pamphlet, they have somebody, they could do a little bit of fentanyl, it won't be as high anymore, but they'll still be under the effects of the drug to where the re respiratory and that will start to shut down. So any other subsequent dose would actually kill somebody. So what, what I would like to do is to stop that sort of messaging from going on. When somebody is using, the thing they're going to latch on to the most is the messaging that says my self-destructive behavior is okay. So I don't want to stigmatize people, but I do want to actually put some boundaries around there. And, and assist in some people that are stuck sort of on the street to San Francisco or start moving them point A, self-destruction into treatment and into independence. So that would be something I would like to do is start moving people from point A to point B sort of into treatment. People treatment, even in our prisons here in my state, it doesn't happen. I mean, I just think so much more money needs to be put toward treatment and to make it accessible and, and effective treatment for everybody. I really think it takes government funds to set up the kind of treatment systems, systems that we need within our medical systems, you know, not necessarily outside of our medical systems. I'll agree with you. You need more money, but you also need more people capable. You need the capacity of people to actually use the dollars. And qualified like practitioners who are treating people too. You need that. Part of sometimes the money gets log jammed with some of it because you need facilities. You have to kind of build capacity as well. Part of it you start running into too, and I, I'm not being negative here, is actual sort of providers who's going to do the work on the ground to treat the people. And you need to kind of build out that workforce. And so that's why when I was at ONDCP, I did these webinars, but all about trying to build the peer recovery workforce, because I believe strongly in that. And I, you know, I did peers recovery. I did peer in the emergency rooms when somebody overdoses, you could have peers in there. And I've been to hospital a couple of times for overdoses. I mean, with somebody who else would overdose. So I want them in there. We did peers in the criminal justice system to get people coming out, you know, with offender reentry, but having peers actually work with them to move them and give them more, a greater chance for success. And that's really sort of what, what I, I believe in. And it's all about treatment is not the end. It's the life after treatment and living you know, the life that you're capable of living. You started telling me you still were late for work. You didn't really change your habits, so to speak, but you weren't using. What was it that, that changed? Was it something internal inside that shifted or what happened? It was always kind of uh, sort of hard for me. I think what I, I got a little bit lucky and I, even though it was like very hard for me, I found the passion that, like I said, I went back to do counseling 
And the one thing that I did know was I have a 20 something year use history. So I know sort of all the feelings associated with that. And I had done a service work and I, I felt kind of foolish doing it. But every Tuesday I would go back to my halfway house and I would take all the new admits on a city bus, show them where the AA inner group is, the job fair site, the, this sort of a thing. So I did that and I spent the whole day with the new guys once a week. And then I would answer the AA hotline. And I did a lot of this out of aimlessness. So I, I kind of clicked in doing those sorts of things. And before you know it, I got eight months and I was like, wow, you know, then I ended up with a year. Uh, I even hung out with people who were using at that point in time, but for some reason I didn't. Well, it sounds to me like you found some purpose in helping others. Big part of it. That's why, when, you know, when I say treatment center criteria for our thing is we want, we really want to build those soft skills for people, you know, how to show up on time, how to be accountable. But I, I'm a big advocate for employment or education opportunities to kind of find your niche as you're kind of moving into life. And part of the problem is if you do have a long history of addiction, you may probably most likely have felonies on your record and you can't get a job and you can't get housing. You can't get all these things well, you know, because of the felonies. All, all those things are tough. They're obstacles. You got to build the thing back. And then that's why I really believe in a lot of recovery supports that sort of thing to kind of keep people moving along. You're going to have all kinds of difficulties trying to get back into the workforce. A lot of things are, are going to be that way. That's why I was a big advocate. I wouldn't just discharge them, but then if you can't find a place to live. You could definitely go into an Oxford house. And then from there, kind of working yourself up that way. And sometimes you have to coach them along. That's a lot of it. Like post-treatment is coaching as much as therapy, but you know, you're going to hit roadblocks, but uh, I want you to kind of have the gumption to actually start working through these. You're not going to give up. You're going to keep trying. You're going to keep doing it. So even if the felony's on your record, you know, I, I still want you to go out there and try to get a job. So it's not okay to not, not actually work for it. And that's really what I tried to encourage people to do. So what is next for you? Really kind of putting this foundation together. And I got another other projects that I'm definitely active in. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of Grieving Out Loud. I just think your story is so fascinating going from 20 years of addiction, losing jobs, getting into recovery, becoming an addiction counselor yourself, getting your PhD, going to DC. Thank you for having me on. And I, you know, I, like I said, I, I really, really appreciate your courage and what you had been working through in your life and then turning around and making something super concrete out of it, I, you know, super productive, like 230 people scholarships, I think mm. is just really awesome. That's Yeah. Emily's Hope, and just for our audience may not know our listeners, Emily's Hope has helped put 233 people through treatment with Emily's Hope treatment scholarships. So we are proud of that. We want to continue to do that too. I keep doing that. I appreciate it. Good luck with all of your endeavors too. And Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for joining me for Grieving Out Loud. You can listen to more episodes of this podcast and read my blogs on our website, emilyshope.charity. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. <laughs>